couple of weeks ago, uh, this was in late August, um, the JAMA Review put out a note from uh, Dr. Davidson and Thomas McGinn, and they were basically raising that question. They were saying, well, we know that social determinants of health, it's been proven that they have an impact on health. However, what we don't know at this point is who exactly in the system is responsible um, to solve this. And it's launched a very big debate. Um, they actually followed up, so Gemma had a poll on their Twitter that was asking presumably physicians, right? <laughs> Because who else follows this tweet? Um, but basically that, that was asking the audience to cast their votes and they put out this statement, medical schools should produce physician scientists, not physician social justice activists. And um, the results are quite interesting because uh, 69% of the respondents disagreed with that statement. So almost 70% believe that, you know, to some degree, social determinants of health is a part of um, the doctor's job. Um, this comes in a very interesting moment, right? Because on one hand, you're looking at the physician burnout rates. They already have a lot going on on their plate. So... Um, adding these responsibilities could be quite stressful and, and demanding in, in a context where they don't really have that bandwidth. Um, and at the same time, this is something we'll talk at the very uh, end of the episode, so stick around if you want the details on that. But um, if you're looking at the billing codes and the way we're now able to capture the social determinants of health in the system and what that means for big data um, and for maybe changing the way we, we provide care or connect people to resources. It's, it's a very interesting landscape. So it all aligns very, very nicely. So it's under this backdrop that we're actually uh, welcoming Kyla Christensen. We'll introduce her in just one moment. Um, and it's funny, you know, because we record these episodes a little bit ahead of time. We never know quite um, what happens on the week we release it, but I think this week is <laughs> it's a very good match because the, this is going on um, in, in the healthcare space. And her perspective is interesting because it's kind of stepping on the other side, the side that traditionally did take care of social determinants of health and trying to understand a little bit more what that landscape is like, what that experience is like. Um, and it's not hard to imagine what that would mean if, if we're looking at um, physicians also adopting a, a portion of that or connecting to that world. So definitely a world worth exploring. You're listening to Healthcare Focus, and I'm your host, Karina Paraskeev. Healthcare Focus is the podcast where we follow healthcare news and industry research so you don't have to. Social determinants have been such a big topic lately, and it makes a lot of sense. We cannot dissociate, uh, you know, pure healthcare, like a biological, anatomical uh, reality, with the circumstances under which a person lives. And last week was very interesting because, as part of our student special, we looked at behavioral health with Elizabeth Balskus. And behavioral health is one of those things when you think, okay, the mind is distinct from the body, therefore it's traditionally not considered within the realm of medicine. And yet they do impact each other. Well, here's another way, another lens of looking at medicine. If you expand the definition and you start to integrate things like social work, which is the topic we will um, dive into today, we then realize that healthcare, you know, the, the well-being of people matters because it's not just the anatomical reality, but it's also all of the things that 
surround that individual. And this is a very key concept, which is really starting to infiltrate uh, the healthcare system these days. Now, Kyla Christensen has a lot of experience when it comes to working with different patients in different situations, and her stories are always very fascinating to me. Now, today she's sharing some of the insights, and one thing that I will mention, which is very interesting to me, is she's also going to share a very special form of notation, which I think not many of us are aware of. We have not really, perhaps, thought through on how to systemically collect that kind of information and that notation system is I think great basis perhaps for in the future a system that does collect and um, perhaps um, label things so we can query and understand them or at least transmit information to each other from one professional to another to really understand a person holistically. So without further ado, Kyla Christensen and we're looking into social work. So Kyla, there's something that I think is very surprising to people, at least some, some of us. Um, we're used to walking into a, a doctor or physician's office and there's a physician, there's maybe a nurse, but sometimes there's a social worker and I think most of us are not aware that this is actually happening. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So oftentimes the social worker is not like on the front line, but when something happens that's more of an extreme case or um, something with the doctors and they need a different perspective they do bring in the social worker it's starting to become more of like an integrated team though so that social workers are more present regardless Um, and we're also like in my studies are talking about making social workers more on the forefront rather than just like discharge and like oh you need transportation now we'll come in but they're going to be a part of the introduction and the diagnosing, etc. Um, now, social workers, as as a general role or, or, or field, they're not restricted only to medical field, right? No. They they can be trained for a variety of settings. Yeah. Is it a, is there a difference between working in a hospital and working in a community organization? So there are two differences. So the main two larger differences is there just there's direct practice, and then there is the COSO, which is the community organizing. So if you're going to work in policy and at a larger level, more like in the background, you're going to be COSA. But if you're going to be direct practice, you're going to be maybe in a hospital or CYF, which is child and youth and families. So you're going to be in the court system or advocating with um, drug cases, etc. There's also going to be people who are working in the mental health sector, which is like again transitioning to be more of like intertwined with the medical field so it's physical and mental health rather than two separate things um and really like social work can be like your hr and like integrated into lots of other things that way um yeah so so this is very interesting because you do mention this idea of integration and i think that's been a big theme lately if you look at social determinants of health then we see an integration of the person and their community as opposed to just the hospital you're mentioning also this idea of physical and mental that go together um this idea yeah there's a lot of ideas i think that are are starting to play now um do you want to tell me a little bit about this idea actually of the social determinants in in health and the idea that that person lives in a context that's not the hospital sure absolutely so the one thing that as social workers that we really focus on is the person and it being person-centered and so specifically 
we always keep in mind like our core values and our ethics and one of those things is self-determination and so um, we let them guide their decisions we can give you these tools and we can give you this advice but if you don't want to do it you don't have to do it and there's no consequences Um, and usually that's a perspective that we try to bring say in the medical field like they don't want this treatment option or this treatment route like what's another option and maybe there isn't and so we need to come back to the individual the patient or client and say these are your options and really talk to them and explain to them like this is what's possible and sometimes maybe transportation I keep bringing up is an issue so if they have to go get dialysis every other week and they don't have a car that becomes a barrier so is there a different treatment option or what can we do there to help support them in that restriction that they have and so that just goes further into the context of what variables play a role in their lives to make treatment or um, if you're an outpatient or inpatient like what is possible why do you think patients need a social worker because what you're saying is basically people should be able to make their own decisions Mm -hmm. they you know should be able to examine different options can an individual do that on their own or is it is it like a more stressful period like what what makes it specific so in purely just my opinion yeah um I think people get scared, especially in like a medical setting. If your doctor comes in and it's the first time you're hearing that you have cancer, you go into shock, you can't process and you can't make decisions quite properly. Um, And so they really just don't know how to advocate for themselves maybe in that moment. A lot of times people don't want to question authority. A lot of times we're just taught that the doctor is the expert and so they know what's best and so we don't question them, which is not true. Like, you're your own expert. You know your body best. You know your environment best. You know everything about you the best. So you should be a part of that conversation. And so that is where, like, that self-determination comes in. And, like, um, absolutely people can be their own advocate and don't necessarily need a social worker but it's nice to have somebody like on your side and listening to what you have to say rather than just talking at you and how do you know when you're in front of someone because I'm, I'm imagining like you're you're a fairly young person mm-hmm. you go and maybe you're talking to someone who's you know at the end of their life and they're 96 years old and it's it's an experience in a world that you haven't really been through yet how do you as a young person connect to what it is that they're living and helping them even though it might be a new landscape for you sure so just as simple as it sounds empathetic listening you have to take a minute and listen and not just be ready to talk like there's something that goes with actually listening to what someone is saying and how they're feeling and what's been going on in their life and what's been working because no one else is listening to them and being able to say I hear you not that you understand because you don't understand how they feel but you hear what they're saying and you can provide them with advice or you just simply ask like what can I do for you so that they know that they have like that cushion and that support that you're not just another person talking at them and you're not just another person saying oh you don't know I'm and I'm in charge I know what's going on Right, and it's important to have that other person that actually, you know, doesn't take over and kind of gives right. you that space. Right. But I, I think when I hear you talk about that, I also imagine like when we in our everyday life are meeting people who have mm-hmm. different experiences, we tend to immediately have thoughts or have emotions mm-hmm. or reactions to what they're saying. How do you create that space so that you say, you know what, I'm going to suspend that judgment. I'm going to, I might feel something in my gut because sure. it resonates with me, but it's not my feeling, right? Sure. 
a lot of that comes with practice um but there's like putting up your screen door so that you can say like especially if something's like a heavy situation someone I had mentioned earlier maybe someone just found out that they have cancer like you have to be able to protect yourself from that emotion and be able to process that too with them but not take it in with you but there's like lots of things in our little social work toolkit like the empathetic listening um if you don't quite understand or maybe you have stuff you want to say but you don't want to jump into it too fast you can be a soundboard and have them further that more so that they say it again or maybe reframe it so that you can maybe process it further and a huge thing that's really hard is just like the pregnant pause like really sitting in the silence because especially if you feel like man I want to fix this it's not your job to fix people we're just here to help and so if you sit in that maybe they'll have a realization or maybe you will and then you come to it together and another thing that I personally have really taken in is asking that person like do you want advice? Do you want me to be angry with you? Do you want me to, like, what do I need to give you? And then letting them tell you, yes, I'm so angry, like, let's be upset. And then you can process that, and then you can come back and say, okay, now where do we go? Like, what are our options and what should we do? Yeah, your, your job sounds really difficult. I think people underestimate <laughs> the, the fact that, like, it may not be, um, like those kind of like oh it's like an exact science or this or that but like the the fact that you're in contact with someone and you're exposed and you have empathy for that person um i'm guessing it, and, and all the people you meet are having an issue because that that's the definition of your job right do, do you guys have like techniques to recharge or like self-care does that exist sure absolutely so most generally you're right anytime we as a social worker are going to see somebody they're at their worst and not their best and we probably won't see them at their best and so we're helping them find tools and we're helping them find things to be better and improve and happier them so that we don't see them again um but like you said self-care is something that we really have to focus on and it's something that's super hard um but really giving yourself 15 minutes at the end of the day or i'd mentioned this screen door like you can't take your work home with you and you can't take your work in with you in the moment. So if you were to tell me something super traumatic, I can still be empathetic for you and watch you, but I don't have to like let that all into my heart and my being. And you're able to feel empathy and at the same time distance. That's a Yeah, thing. absolutely. You don't empathy is sharing that heaviness, but it doesn't mean you're living with that. And so, and I'm sure you know, like, the difference between sympathy and empathy and being empathetic and truly saying, like I said earlier, I hear you and you're going to sit with them in that is a huge part of what we do. But being able to say, like, it's nine, I'm going home and I can't take that home with me is, like, incredibly important. And not checking your email or turning your phone off or having a work phone and a personal phone and more specifically because our clients our relationship gets a little more personal like making our social media private so that they can't be our like in our personal lives and then just being mindful of little things and boundaries that lead into bigger boundaries perhaps and that's just all learning what you're comfortable with some people in our field will just say here's my number call me anytime and if that works for them that works for them but other people that's going to create burnout really fast that's interesting <laughs> it, it's a yeah a full-time job that you have to not make a full-time thing right. you have to and kind of put the limit with that like I'm a social worker in my job 
And so now all of a sudden I'm a social worker in my family and in my friend group and at my uh, volunteer position, everyone's like, oh, you'll do it. You know how to, you're a social worker, you'll figure it out. Or of course, Kyla will volunteer. And so like learning to say no or learning to know like how much you can take on and you might be a social worker at work, but you don't have to be everyone's social worker is like a huge lesson to learn. And, and you might need to, it might need to be about you sometimes too. Because right. I feel a lot of your job is about the right. other person and what they need. And at some point like you exist too, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so going back to that hospital idea, let's take that social yes. worker that has their own, you know, emotional processing and their own thing going on and they're there to help a patient sure. that is also maybe chalk or that kind of thing so what can you walk me through what the interaction looks like when when do they know it's time to actually bring on a social worker sure so i previously referenced like shortly like generally it's when it's something bad is happening or maybe the case is changing and the trajectory is totally different and so they're like well now what do we do or how do we work with this person and their family or this person and their daughter who doesn't want to agree um an easier example is to think of maybe an older adult who's like transitioning into maybe their palliative care or even their hospice but now their daughter and their son and their son's wife are all trying to make decisions for this person. This person, the older adult, might not be able to make, they maybe they're not coherent enough, or maybe they're just not in a state to make decisions anymore. So now it's left down to those people to make those decisions, but the daughter does not want to continue with the hospice care, but the son's adamant and says, um, we need to move into hospice. So now you have to think about the family, and you also have to think, Maybe the client themselves has this agenda that they had, their pulse or something for their end-of-life plan. What did they want? And you're always representing the interest of that patient. Yes. Even if the family wants something and whatnot, you're kind of the advocate and you're saying, what would that person want? Yes, absolutely. So we are on the patient's side. But the family is involved in that too, and so that's called a family system. Mm, and so now we have to consider the patient and the daughter and the son and his spouse and whoever else may come into the mix and the doctors and what they think is best. So now you have this whole group that is trying to make decisions for this person who can't even make a decision for themselves anymore. So you have to really take time, and maybe that's family meetings, maybe it's one-on-one, maybe it's talking with a doctor and saying, what is your plan? What do you think is best? And then relaying that into like understandable conversations for the children themselves. And then you really have to think what is best for the patient and how can we make that happen? But also giving the children who now are in charge of making that decision, the autonomy and like the ability to make that choice. Right. Because ultimately if they care for a right. patient, for example, and their caregivers at home, mm-hmm. they need to be on board as well. You can't just force yeah. that on someone. And that's like an even further step. So if they're a caregiver, you have to now think the priority of the caregiver. Like, are they getting time to themselves? Are they only in the house? Are they isolated all the time? Like what's happening to them and their health and their well-being to be able to be able to continue to caregive. So it gets really messy really fast, but you have to be able to pick it apart and then be able to be able to bring it back together and say these are the communications that need to happen and these are the steps to again reach the end goal of in this example 
transitioning to hospice care but like bringing that daughter on board so that she it's hard to let go and the whole process is grief and it's like a challenge and you have to be able to accept that so you might be extending more help now to the family like let's connect you with this resource or like visitation is this time for your mom like you can come in at any time and these are all possibilities and like really making a comfortable situation for everyone including the doctors and the nurses and the staff and everybody else that's involved on like the professional side it's very complex i think it's very interesting that you have this kind of expanded view of the patient that it's not just that one person but it's the whole team supporting him yeah i think it's even more interesting when you're looking at how the medical community bills for things so Mm-hmm. On the medical side, we have billing codes, which means mm-hmm. every time I, I do a surgery or every time I perform like or I examine you, I'm putting into the EHR uh, or whatever billing system I have, I'm putting in all these codes, right, to say this is my diagnosis code, this is what I'm billing for, and, and the insurance gets charged accordingly. I think it tends to skew the, the, the system in, in a way sometimes because you're saying, well, I'm providing care to that patient and I can bill for it, therefore, you know, here's the outcome and here's the, the money I'm getting for it. Right. It's interesting to think of a system that extends beyond the patient. Do you, do you use billing codes for families? Is, is there a concept in social work of billing codes? Uh, no, because that's the problem. Like, the family and the patient isn't a code. They're people. And so they get kind of lost. And oftentimes, even in social work, we're in charge of the insurance and, like, getting that outlet in so that the hospital gets paid. But we have to be able to do that timely and, like, within the right like guidelines that the hospital has for expectations but we also have to give the best care and like if the family wants to continue like major treatment then we're gonna have to figure that out whether it's private or copay or whatever it may be um but it the codes and the the abbreviations and the medical jargon like goes away for us because it's the family and the person so how does that work in terms of like project management or budgets do you because I, I imagine often when you get get something at least from the insurance side there's kind of this scope of work like sure. you need to you know and, and especially with bundles it's like okay that person's been diagnosed with this mm-hmm. like you guys are in charge of the care work it out but it, that person needs to be out of the hospital in three days in three days right yeah. how how does it work with something that's a, a human process can you plan for that Is there variance across people? Like how? Uh, I mean, now you've been giving that deadline. This person's had this surgery. They need to be out in three days. So first, that would start out like, what do I need to do to make sure that they can be out in three days? Is that possible? Can we do that? Do I need to find transit? Do I need to contact family to pick them up? Do I need to make sure that they're going to be able to get to their therapy? Do I need to set up like physical therapy and how they can get there? So sometimes if they have to go to short term, then you might have to hold them longer. There might not be room and they might have nowhere to go. So then you adjust and you move on to the next client and you say wow we can get them out tomorrow instead of in two days like let's do that so you compensate and you're trying to make it yeah not not that people are (laughs) right yeah but (laughs) but it's it's a kind of a bigger picture approach yeah and it's knowing where you can make that difference and how you can do that and who should transition and maybe they're in this bed but we can put them in a bed on the fourth floor and so that we have this room open like so there's a lot shuffling of, yeah there's a lot of creative thinking involved yeah. there being able to pivot is very important with the work that we do with again like I said the professional side with the doctors and the nurses and then again with that 
client in their family. Do you do you need to like develop a specific vocabulary or way of communicating maybe with so you mentioning children are very different from sure. grown-ups and maybe you know the average grown-up in a family is different from the average surgeon. Like sure. do you do you have to tailor your style depending yeah. on the stakeholders? And so if you bring children in the perspective, uh, you have to be able to talk to the child and the family and that sometimes I think that can go both ways with children and with older adults sometimes people forget to talk to the actual patient and say like this is what's going on right that's um, when when we hear they say that they talk around the person yeah. is that what they mean yeah absolutely like you're the parents I don't need to talk to the kid and so I would just talk to you but that's absolutely not correct you why, need to be why able is to... it not correct well, what's the impact on a child that doesn't get noticed or included sure so first they're people would you want someone to just talk around you no you're obviously going to talk to a four-year-old different than you're going to talk to a 12 year old but you're still going to talk to them and inform them and inform the family some of that comes with consent based like hey mom and dad i'm going to talk to your daughter and like i want you to be present for this conversation and then we're going to have a further conversation but i want to know because you're building rapport with the parents that's trust and you're also including that kid in on the trust now too so it gets complicated sometimes but it's very important to have those conversations and remember what you're going especially with kids i had mentioned the family system previously so the kid may be at the center of that system but their parents are next and now their grandparents and now they're in a hospital so you've taken them out of their home which is their base and you've put them in this new place and so now they aren't going to school maybe depending on what like the circumstances maybe um For example, I have a cousin and he has osteosarcoma, so he was in the hospital for quite a while. Um, and so my aunt was there and with him every day, but my uncle had to be with the other two siblings to take them to school and to work and to keep life going even though life for him and my aunt had to stop. So they are living in a different world right now. But he's not going to school. He's going to have to go to school. Um, he's making new friends who also have cancer. Like, what does that relationship look like? There's support groups. There's now, like, dad and brothers are back. Like, it's a constant change. And so it just is interesting to watch and see how people adjust in their resiliency, but also being able to facilitate that and make it an easy transition and help them change if they're in the hospital or help them adjust back to their new home life. Yeah, so there's a whole hidden world that you're describing because yeah. we tend to think of the patient as you're in your bed, like I come see you, I get your <laughs> right. vitals, like that's the right. end of it, but for them that's probably the tip of the iceberg and they have this whole other world that they're right. linked to and and that they return to which I think is an important thing. Right. Is is the passage in the hospital something you you think of longitudinally like they come in and they'll go out and the goal is to have them healthy in the community? Like is that a view of the hospital is just a passage or is the hospital like the moment when you come in that that matters i think that depends on the case and like what exactly you're working with some people might only be in the hospital and have that a part of their life for just 
three months or maybe it's just one crisis situation and okay we're fixed we're good now we're just in physical therapy and so I think it can be viewed both ways um but if you're looking at somebody with maybe a more like serious or terminal illness like that becomes a bubble in their life it becomes a new house and so like if you I'd mentioned these systems and we use eco maps to do this because now you have the hospital system and the home system and so if I go back to my cousin um, with osteosarcoma like he was five when he was diagnosed and so very young so that means the family the parents are very very involved in that decision process um, and so sometimes he's at the hospital but when he got into rehab he was able to go to hospital regularly go to school he's also in soccer they also go to youth group so there's that just like crossover but the hospital is a constant back in their part of their life so it's a part of their routine now yeah that's interesting so if you were to draw uh like an ecosystem where you take a pen and you take a piece of paper and you got you guys actually do that with right. uh, the eco map was it yeah um you now add a bubble to that system so yes. that kid before the hospital was just not there now you add that node and i'm guessing like habits and like networks of people mm -hmm. like that shifts and changes mm -hmm. and now integrates that new entity um when you're doing that and i thought it was very interesting because we, we don't always think about what are other tools that other people use right like sure. in business and in like administration when you're looking at healthcare we use like I don't know if you guys use that, but, you know, flow maps where we have like swim lanes and you have these little boxes and you say, okay, the doctor comes in and then he does this action and there's a decision and then the nurse comes in and then the social worker comes in. And so right. that's like one of the standards. Um, I haven't seen for patient collection any tools per se. Like what we have is the EHR. The nurse comes in and takes the patient history the first time. Sometimes the doctor does it again. They have these different categories mm -hmm. where they have... I don't know if you've seen one of them they have you know like the, the family environment and like do they have pets and right. you know those boxes and it's very interesting because I'm, I'm trying to picture as you're talking to a little human being to maybe <laughs> a parent that's stressed and you have this computer between you and them and that computer takes only you know sentences you basically have to write right. um you, you might not write it on the spot some, some people do it at the end but of the day but It, it's linear thinking and yet discussions are not always linear right mm -hmm. so I, I think can you tell us a little bit of that, that tool because I thought you know listeners should know about that that um, different tool because I thought here's a tool that doesn't require you to mm -hmm. take this linearly doesn't require you to fill it in boxes and that most of all the shorthand that you guys developed lets you really listen yeah so One important thing is that the way that you document is a important to whatever facility you're with, but it's also important how you do it. So like whatever works for you. I kind of like this eco mapping, genogramming stuff because it's very visual. And so like if I were to bump into my case manager and she had a question about that case, I could easily say like, hey, yeah, and these are their priorities or this is that relationship. Like don't send him home with his dad because there's been fighting that way or whatever you can have that conversation and so like what that looks like for me when I use an eco map is first it's a genogram which is essentially like a family tree and there is like a general quote-unquote coding that goes with it boxes are male circles are female and then there's lines that create like a solid line is a positive relationship and a zigzaggy line is there's some tension um, you can also have arrows 
that comes into the eco map. So if you draw your genogram, which is your family tree, some people will do it differently, but I like to draw my circle around my focus person. And so then that's what's coming in and coming out. So there's inputs, outputs, throughputs also. So it's all very technical and like just like any other flow chart basically, but just like a little more of like a community map rather than just some stats on a sheet. So if you have your circle around, let's say Jonathan, and he's your sole patient, you have the parents included in that, so you would include their relationship. He's really close with his mom, and he is like, okay, close with his dad. So you would indicate that however comfortable with you. And then I kind of mentioned with my cousin, but like, let's say with Jonathan in this case, he does go to church and he has lots of friends there. So you would draw an out arrow and an in arrow because there's support coming in and he relies on the church. And then you'd also include the school and you would say how those arrows are coming in and out and he has a lot of homework and he's really stressed because he hasn't been in school so that might be a little more of a trenuous line and so in that case you could talk to Jonathan about what can we do to make school easier like who at school do you have a good relationship with and like how can we get them involved and you could also maybe say mom is close with the guidance counselor at school so we're gonna like fill in that relationship so it really helps you visually look at it and say like oh yeah Mom is close with the guidance counselor. Hey, can you call her? Can you give me that information so that I can re- like start that relationship? And that can be as like intense of a map as you need it to be or as simple. Like some people do it very shorthand just to get a quick look and some people will really rely on it to like be able to say this is what's going on. This is where they are. This is where we're going. This is what we need to fix. This is what is going really well and this is what we need to like really anchor ourselves in. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I'm very amazed by this tool because as you're speaking, it goes on through my mind like, oh, these are so many ways you can apply it. There's this idea of systems thinking, which Mm -hmm. I think is very absent. It's it's starting to get into the dialogue, but it's still, you know, somewhat new to healthcare to think, okay, not just the person, but what's their context, what's the supporting um, family and whatnot, the resources that they have. So very interesting. Mm -hmm. Second idea you're bringing is this idea of creative problem solving because you're saying, you know, there might be more than one way to solve something and Mm -hmm. it might look like a dead end that way, but when you have the whole map in front of you suddenly you see maybe possibilities which i think is absolutely inspiring and the third thing that that you're also mentioning is collaboration because you might be working on this case but someone else might be on the team maybe another social worker maybe another function i don't know if you guys use this across roles but certainly i think to build common understanding to have a something you can look at i think for knowledge transfer but also for validating understanding i imagine that if i would show you a map and say this is how I think Jonathan's world is and you look and you say no no you got that line wrong it should be squiggly right. then all of a sudden we're aligned on what Jonathan's reality is right and I think that's extremely powerful for for a caretaking team absolutely and just like to kind of wrap that up like this sort of tool helps us like look at Jonathan per se or whatever individual holistically not only as them and their relationships but also like them in the community or them and whatever else that might be going on and their behaviors their relationships um like any restrictions that they might have it really turns it around so that you're not just like hung up on the challenge or you're hung up on the crisis like you're able to say this happened but there's these strong suits and so you can really turn that around and not get like 
narrowed in and stuck in one place it allows you to really like look at it from all perspectives mm. how do you guys document this like archive it is it in a software is it in someone's file or is it in your notebook how do you get this to kind of stick with the patient over time sure so depending on again where you are like say in a hospital I think this would be more so for like personal use so I'd have to be really conscientious of where I have that and how I have like where I'm storing it if I'm locking it up etc it's not something I would just carry around in the hospital with me but if I know I'm going to go meet with that person I would say oh I can't remember who's in the room or I can't remember what happened this week I need to take a look back and oftentimes you can take this eco map and turn it into like just like documentation so that it can be now notes rather than this map because some people just don't process the same um I really don't think there's a software for it but you can easily use your paint tools yeah. online and do whatever or... yeah whatever works um I- I'm impressed with what you're saying because you're saying it's not just to communicate and to you know document it but it's also you as a person can go back and I guess you're seeing a lot of different people at the same time you might it might be right. you know three months since you saw someone I think it's there's a power and I think there's a huge debate in the EHR system right now they say well there's just so much data how do I go back and get the full picture and I feel you guys have yeah. figured a pretty good way of capturing in a way that's digestible and that right. you can go back three months from now look and be reminder I, I, I'm guessing this is also full of triggers because you remember the discussions and the yeah and you can see you can look and see like if you go in and you're talking to somebody maybe you're just doing one-on-one like catch-up session or counseling or whatever you can look and see like last time we talked you weren't doing so well with your mom like how is that and you can catch up I like when you said like maybe it's three months later maybe they haven't been coming to their appointments so you can look at your map and say oh yeah they told me that like they have major anxiety and they their car broke down so they've been using public transit but they don't know how to work it like you can write those notes down and now you say like I should follow up because they probably don't know how to get here or they're embarrassed or xyz has happened and I just want to make sure they're okay yeah that's amazing I love that Um, so I think we've got a lot of uh, new info, I think, for our listeners that maybe don't know as much about social work. But maybe in closing, do you think there's myths or things that you hear sometimes about your profession that you're like, mm, I think people didn't get that quite right. <laughs> like, what is it that you think, like, mythbuster time? What would you tell them? <laughs> sure. So, like, the top two things that we hear all the time uh, is social workers are just going to take my babies away and give out food stamps. Like... <laughs> That's not what we do. Like I said earlier, we're in the hospital, we're doing mental health work, we're doing policy work, we're doing all sorts of other things. Um, we want you to keep your children. <laughs> we don't want them. Um, and the other thing is we aren't here to give you advice. We're here to support you. And so we're not here to just fix your problems, but we're here to give you like the resources to do so. And so I think those are the main two things that really come in, especially that first one. Like, people don't really understand what social work is and that it's a tool rather than this scary thing that people have experienced in the past. You have a very noble profession. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks. This was fun.
If you've enjoyed、uh, this particular episode, we want to point you to two things that we've produced recently that you might also enjoy. So, one of them is on our YouTube channel. If you look up, so it's a healthcare focus on YouTube. If you look up the social determinants of health and ICD 10,、uh, this is a quick update on the 10 new codes. And to be frank, they aren't completely new. <laughs> Some of them existed already in the system, but they were very underutilized. So, the.、Um, The new initiative with CMS and, and、um, other partners to bring those to the forefront, adding a couple and really making it、um, into something trackable. So, very interesting on that front.、Um, and for those of you who don't know, this is for the EHR, so the、um, electronic health record. We can now enter、um, billing codes. Uh, well, which aren't really billing, <laughs>、um, but you can enter codes that are going to enable us to track the person's situation beyond just the physical、um, elements. And of course, it's not necessarily billing in the sense that、um, you know, the doctor cannot necessarily provide you housing, but they can connect you with other、um, partners who can. And so, this is where the system becomes quite innovative because now, if there's a widespread use of those codes, it means people can.、Um, Track what systems, physicians, and, and hospitals can basically make queries and identify patients who might benefit from help.、Um, and also in the bundles payment, it might need that we can factor in some of the,、um, the difficulties that, that、uh, or challenges that patients encounter so that we can have a, a fairer、uh, payment scheme there that doesn't disadvantage physicians for taking on at risk patients. So it's a lot of very interesting implications in the work. And、um, Also, if you're interested in knowing what hospitals are doing at a broader level,、um, a little piece on our blog, healthcarefocus.org, in the blog section, the hospitals and social innovation, you might have to scroll down a little bit. It's、uh, one of the first articles there. It's quite interesting because the,、um, a lot of hospitals have been going more and more into、um, you know, acquiring housing. For、uh, underprivileged、uh, neighborhoods or providing meal services, a lot of different things that were traditionally not seen as an investment that a hospital would make. And so、um, this absolutely tackles the same trend. And、um, this article we actually wrote about a year ago, and it's very interesting to see that it was emerging then, but it's still a very big debate. And I think catching more and more now, it's becoming really mainstream as, as a. As a business model. So, very interesting to follow if you're interested in the hospital and physician portion of this.